So, Gunnar, I got some robotics updates for you. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah. So if you missed the uh, local uh, Cleveland news the other night, um, Lauren and the Fighting Unicorns were, were on the news. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, so they had their um, – Lauren and, and three of the other uh, of her teammates were, were on the studio, and they had one of the robots with them, and, and they were talking about what they're doing and uh, showing off their trophies and, and all that. So that, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, getting the word out about, you know, robotics and, uh, you know, getting girls involved in, in STEM and all that. But uh, from a sad news standpoint, uh, have you heard about uh, Robo Loco? Robo Loco. That's a Guarana, like, caffeine drink, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and it has alcohol in it, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's uh, Robo Loco, uh, Loudoun County. So for all of our listeners that are in the D.C. area, that's... Uh, there's a public school, uh, I guess Loudoun County Public Schools. Their high school robotics team um, had a similar experience to uh, um, the Fighting Unicorns where they got the opportunity to go to the World Championship in St. Louis in a couple of weeks. Um, but the sad news is is that um, they had their robot in the trailer with all their laptops and the trophies from that they won at their competition. Oh, no. Stolen. It was stolen. Oh man, that's got to be heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean it's one. Th- I mean you're uh, like, I, I don't know, stealing uh, candy from a baby, but here you're stealing robots from high school kids. So that's that's like not cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can imagine that's like a high target thing or a high value target where you know you have all these tools or whatever that that are easy to like fence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you would think that after a while, it's like. You know, you open the thing up, and it's like, oh, there's some trophies here. Isn't that cool? And you steal them? Like, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And as we'll find out later, you do not want to want to mess with children who are building drones. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. You'll get pepper sprayed. Um, <laughs> so we have, and so what's going on is that, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, people can go, like, the kids not only, they're, they're going to St. Louis, um, but in the meantime, they're actually building a robot and they need help um financial and otherwise um so if people wanted to um you know make a contribution uh to the the kids they need like 15 grand to like make a new robot um and get to uh you know get tools and buy new laptops and everything and and to be able to get to st louis so if anybody is in the loudon county area and wants to stop by and help or um you know even i think even through paypal you can send them some cash Um, i'll put a link in the show notes for people to um to hit them up. Oh, great. Great. Okay. Um, well, yeah, that is too bad. Uh, but yeah, everybody please go, uh, contribute and, uh, and get these folks back on their feet. We need more robot builders. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So how are you doing? I'm good. I've been, uh, spending my spare time learning the beautiful language of Sweden. Nice. Uh, yeah. So Duolingo, uh, the, uh, the app service, I guess, uh, has a surprisingly good and kind of fun to use, uh, uh, teaching tool. Um, and, uh, you know, they do the usual Spanish, French, German, and so on, but they recently added Swedish, which is great for me because, um, a lot of my wife's family is from Sweden. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so that I can make sure that they're not talking about me, I'm going to learn, <laughs> I'm going to learn language. And, uh, it got me thinking though, I mean, the service is very high quality, um, yeah. and I'm enjoying it a great deal. And I couldn't figure out how they were making money because they certainly weren't asking me for any money. No, no ads. No ads, 
And oh. so I did a little research and I found out that Duolingo makes its money by basically turning you into a robot. Um, once you get a mechanical Turk, once you get to a sufficient level of expertise, they start feeding you passages, uh, from books that need to get translated. Hmm. And so this is, and so this is how they make their money is they basically rent out the hundreds of thousands of people who are refreshing their language skills on Duolingo. Uh, you are refreshing your language skill using the, using texts that need to get translated as kind of the grist for the vocabulary exercises. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I was at um, I was in Raleigh last week and at dinner with a bunch of uh, uh, coworkers, and they're all like, "Oh yeah, I'm using Duolingo. Everybody's using Duolingo except for me." Um, you know, like there's uh, uh, one of the guys is learning French, another one of the guys is learning German, and all that. So yeah, I must be missing out. Yeah, it's pretty great. And uh, as we discussed in the, in a previous episode, you can uh, also get uh, C plus plus and Pascal uh, yeah. in that Duolingo. So that's good. How about Klingon? Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure that there is a Klingon. <laughs> is that? I mean, think of all the all the Klingon documents that you need translated. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The proceedings of the uh, Klingon Council and what mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, sure. Yeah. High yeah. Council. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, I like how you correct me on the High Council. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of us has watched Star Trek recently. Well, and, and I'm sure Lingon, uh, Lauren will correct me. As well as, you know, actually, you know. There is no high council. Uh, you're, you're thinking of Vulcans. Oh, uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. So, Dave, that's, what do, that's why you have Duolingo, where you get those things corrected, right? You, yeah, you have exactly. all the all the the truckies and and truckers um, and truck. Yeah, uh, all all uh, correcting each other to get the right. The oh, right that stuff. that actually reminds me of, an, of another nice thing about I like about the uh, Duolingo service is that when you go back into if you hit on a problematic phrase or you don't understand why you got a particular translation wrong, you can hit the conversation button and it, they have forums associated with each of the quiz questions, and you can see a conversation among other people who got the same who had questions about the same uh, problem, and mm-hmm. the people who generate the content are in there as well. So in other words, there's like moderators for the, for the modules and the moderators will go in and say, well, well, the reason why I chose, I said that this translation was good and this one wasn't bad is because X, Y, Z and people argue about, um, kind of different interpretations of the, of the grammar. Um, and so there's nice, there's a, uh, kind of a loose community of feeling. Anyway, you get the strong sense that it's not just somebody built a bunch of flashcards. It's actually not that there are people behind the service, uh, which is another attractive thing about it. Yeah, and, and that's cool, too, if you could, like, argue with a Klingon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Only in Klingon. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 So what's going on this week? Let's see. So we do, we, well, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. So first of all, uh, air gaps. We're going to talk about the, the relative security of air gaps, which is now uh, in question. Um, both airlines and hotels uh, are now conspiring to shower us with uh, smell-o-vision, mm-hmm. which is gross. Uh, we're going to talk about the virtues of reproducible builds. Uh, we're going to talk about Red Hat Summit, uh, and uh, we're going to we're going to go back to the topic of uh, running a successful meeting uh, because both of us had uh, bad weeks for bad meetings, um, yeah. and so I think we're going <laughs> to under the under the fig leaf of talking about best practices, we're going to complain bitterly about uh, all the bad meetings we were in this week. <laughs> yes, and send this episode to certain people. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So you know who you are. <laughs> So if folks want the links uh, to the uh, RoboLoco uh, folks um, and they want to make a donation, um, maybe they want to uh, check out that Duolingo business, uh, where, where can they go, Dave? 
they need to go to dgshow.org. So D is in Dave, G is in Gunner, show.org. Nice. And uh, what what's on the cutting room floor this week? Yeah. So how to make a secure phone call, um, how to maintain and operate a Soyuz space capsule, and how to generate uh, how to generate power and desalinate wa- seawater uh, at the same time. Fun instructional this week. We have an instructional mm-hmm. cutting room. Yeah. Floor. So when you're not learning, uh, I wonder if you could learn how to do that in Swedish. Hmm. Okay, Gunnar, so what's what's in the uh, follow-up this week? So for follow-up, we just start off uh, the anonymous uh, but uh, extremely eagle-eyed Unix essay on Twitter. Uh, mm-hmm. Let us know that uh, we had a little Easter egg, didn't we, in our show Yeah, notes. on purpose. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally on purpose. And uh, so the big winner is a Unix essay uh, who alerted us to the fact that we had uh, misnumbered the, uh, mm-hmm. the show. Yeah. Yep. So, so this is 83, this one that we're doing right now. Yep. Pre- again yeah. again that's right previous one was 82 which was yep. 83 but is now 82 yeah this is like one of those tri- time travel things right? <laughs> exactly exactly yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh so thanks unix essay uh full marks you get a next episode uh you, you can download for free yep so yep. thanks for that yeah we need to get like tote bags to give out david gunner <laughs> show right. tote bags for, that's right yeah. well we need more than that we need donors yes yeah to yes exactly besides sean right (laughs) that's right uh so what else we got oh um so hilton um they're coming around with uh getting rid of uh uh pins and and forces everybody to do passwords now huh yeah yeah which is great and long overdue as we know yeah yeah and i i got an email from them saying that if i go in and change my password they'll give me um a thousand points for doing that Oh, that's nice. As if you needed additional incentive, which you don't. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then um, meanwhile, it's like I, I wondered, it's like I still like, you know how you have these accounts that get created that are just like the zombie accounts that you never use anymore, but you still have them and you sort of want to keep an eye on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I checked it, my IHG account, which is was Holiday Inn and that family of, of hotels. I just had an account from forever. And uh, you know what their password complexity is? No, no. What is it? It's uh, any number, any four-digit number. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> so what, what are the odds? What are the odds? <laughs> One in ten thousand, exactly. <laughs> That's terrible. How do they? I, the, I, I mean, it's really that I'm speechless. I mean, that's mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't make any sense. Because like you, you, you have to go out of your way to force a password to be that bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can't even be like a capital zero or something. It, yeah. <laughs> That's awful. Okay. Doghouse for IHG. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dave, you remember we were talking about uh, the license plate readers mm-hmm. and yep. all the uh, kind of civil rights implications of the... Uh, and, we, and we had a lot of questions about retention of the license plate reader data. Mm-hmm. And uh, sh- shortly after we recorded that episode, which I guess was like three weeks ago, uh, mm-hmm. the state of Virginia passed a new law. Uh, uh, I think it was a law. Maybe it was a regulation. Uh, they said uh, they are only going to keep LPR data for seven days, so long mm-hmm. as there is not an active criminal investigation in place. That, that seems reasonable. That seems, that seems utterly level-headed and reasonable. Uh, so nice work, state of Virginia. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if you can do like a FOIA request for that data, but you only have like a seven-day window, that, which would kind of stink, right? Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Uh, well, we have a test case uh, in mm-hmm. Oakland 
yep. so the good people at Ars Digita, uh, who run a phenomenal tech reporting outfit, uh, put this to the test. Uh, they slapped uh, the Oakland PD with a FOIA request uh, for mm -hmm. their license plate reader data. And can you guess how many photos they got back? Uh, let me guess, 4.6 million. 4.6 million precisely. Yeah. Uh, which is amazing. That's amazing. Yep. And it was also 4.6 million of 1.1 unique plates. Yes. Yeah. So that and that was that was over a, a seven day period, right? Oh, it was from uh, what December twenty third, twenty ten, and May thirty first, twenty fourteen. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So about three three and a half years, give or take. Yeah. So the uh, and the the scary thing there is that you could analyze it, develop patterns, and. Um, again, if you know, it's it's sort of like future crime, right? Where where you wanted to um, you want to back uh, somebody into a crime that they might have committed over time, or uh, you know, come up with evidence later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and now you don't even have to be the state to do it. Uh, now right. all you have to do is file a FOIA request. <laughs> right. So no. think about like uh, ops research for um, like political campaigns and stuff like that. Oh sure. Of, yeah, so I could FOIA request where that political candidate, you know, parked for however long, and and if it was at a place that is you know questionable or whatever, that that becomes uh, that's part of the public record. Yeah, and a windfall for every uh, divorce lawyer in Oakland. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, so let's see. So you so in the last episode or a previous episode, Dave, we talked about uh, Uzoma pointed us uh, to the Squirrel login system, which used yep. like the robot vomit uh, yes. to get you to log in. But now Yahoo's got a twist on this, right? Yeah, and it's and it's not Squirrel at all. Um, so like two-factor authentication, quick refresh. Um, it's something that you have and something you know. Uh, so it's. Uh, the something you know is like your password, and then something you have maybe like a one-time password generator that would generate it, or you get like an SMS message that would um, that you got a key in that you know you you actually have to have your phone to be able to receive it and do that. Mm -hmm. So the new thing that Yahoo is doing is um, now they're not requiring you to have a password at all, and all they do is send you an SMS message, and the SMS message is your password. Right, so not really like two factor as much as one, one factor. factor. Right, right, <laughs> and that and that factor can be stolen. Yes, or um, you know, it's it's uh, something that like the police could get a hold of, right, and mm -hmm. be able to get your password without having to compel your password from you. Oh, that sounds convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for the police. Yeah. Yep. Uh, why would they do? I mean. I presume they're showered with people doing password reset requests because everybody's forgotten what their Yahoo password was because they all moved to Gmail you know, yes. five years ago, right? And so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the people that are left on Yahoo are yeah or are, are, yeah resetting their passwords. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so that's that. I think that's probably part of it. Is it they? I I think they are also seeing that you know passwords are broken and they see this as a solution. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's a very strong solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, speaking of not very good solutions, uh, Verizon, uh, who has been pummeled into shame uh, over the uh, over the super cookie thing. Yep. Uh, Dave, you want to give people a refresher on uh, super cookies? 
Yeah, so it winds up that they come out with a press release saying that they care about you know the, uh, uh, customers' uh, privacy is their number one priority. Oh, all right. Yeah, that's great. So they say. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and so in celebration of that, uh, they're letting people opt out of Super Cookies. Oh, that's nice of them. That's great. Yeah. And so that that's a so that's a simple just a couple clicks on the website or maybe a, a settings in my phone or something like that. Yeah, you go to a website or call an 800 number. Um, but the big thing is that it is uh, you have to opt out. You're opt in automatically because they want to make sure that your ad experience is optimized. <laughs> right. Speaking of optimized ad experiences, uh, the the shoe finally dropped on the uh, Google Fiber TV, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. So now now they are uh, uh, develop uh, delivering ads based on your viewing habits with uh, Google Fiber TV. Which is not a total surprise and actually very much in keeping with Google's whole thing of like, we develop ad platforms that happen to be extremely convenient for consumers, right? Uh, yeah. So to- totally, in- totally in keeping with what you would expect from Google. Uh, I'm actually surprised that the news only just came out. Um, is it actually going to roll in not just TV viewing history, but also your browser history? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't know. It, and so let's, let's see what they say here. Um, so they're... Um, they're going to see the targeted ads unless they opt out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and they provide uh, instructions for opting out, and you could use your TV remote control to do it. Um, and uh, and also they said that once you've opted out commercials based on your TV viewing history, uh, Google Fiber will not collect information for advertising purposes. Um, so I don't. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they um, use your you know the rest of your Google profile to target you with ads right i mean that seems like the whole point of the exercise as far as google's mm-hmm. concerned right yeah unless unless you know the, the the other way i look at it though is that if you look at a family watches probably google tv or you know as opposed to being directly targeted for a person so um like and and they also said that they're not going to do like targeted ads for you know during children's shows and stuff like that but mm-hmm. but i can't imagine like uh you know beer ads showing up during soap operas or you know things like that it like i wonder how they how they would do that or if they aggregate it based on your viewing habits i I don't know Mm -hmm. i i just had a an epiphany uh so you know that you've got uh you got the apple tv um which is which functions very much like a cable box right uh you log in with a particular apple id and then that gives you access to the stuff you've rented through itunes and and things like that so that's pretty straightforward i understood that chromecast and the new chrome tv or whatever um Mm -hmm. those those are those actually function in a in a kind of a weirder way which is your phone or your tablet is the controlling device and oh right yeah. and what you mm-hmm. do is order chromecast so i say show this youtube video and then my phone goes and tells the chromecast hey this guy wanted to go see this youtube video right from gunner's phone compared from to your wife's phone exactly and so google has actually constructed i just realized this google has actually constructed a system whereby Google can disambiguate in like a family setting. It knows exactly who ordered a particular TV show or a particular movie. Whereas with the Apple TV, all you know is that someone in that household had yep. been using it. That's yep. really interesting. That's really but, interesting. Well, the other thing, just quick newsflash here, is that uh, according to the Kansas City Star, um, that targeted ads will not be tailored from uh, customers' web surfing behavior, uh, the company said, Google oh, said. Okay. 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 So for now. 
that seems like a miss for us. For us, I mean, like yeah. Google's going through an awful lot of trouble to lay all this, you know, new fiber and create this TV service. Um, I, I don't feel like my ad experience would be sufficiently optimized if they weren't cross-referencing it with my web browsing habits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, or they, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of optimizations, uh, uh, AT&T, they, they, uh, they've optimized uh, themselves with the data breach. <laughs> okay. What, uh, how efficient did they get this time? <laughs> um, yeah, 280,000 customers, uh, U.S. customers were exposed. Uh, so uh, names uh, and, as well as their full or partial social security numbers. Oh, good. Okay. All right. Yep. Um, and actually, my favorite part of this news is that it didn't. It's not like it. Uh, not like somebody hacked in somewhere, as far as I know. Uh, yep. It was actually the breach occurred through call centers in Mexico, Colombia, and the Philippines. Yes. Yep. Which, yep. Is, <laughs> which is amazing. So it's not even like one isolated incident of like one person left the door unlocked. It was like obviously, if they were hitting three different call centers in three different countries, this is obvi- This is a systematic problem obviously yeah and and these were employees at&t employees on the payroll they took payment from these third parties uh to uh collect the the names and social security numbers and and i guess supposedly to unlock stolen uh cell phones oh that makes sense that makes sense yeah Mm -hmm. i mean put a human in the loop you can bribe a human right yeah and and the thing that drives me crazy is that if you think, you know, like you call these customer service places and then you say, they'll say, oh, what's the last four of your social security number? Um, I've never been in a call center, but my guess is that the last four is up on the, the screen that the mm-hmm. um, the tech is looking at. And mm-hmm. so you say it and then they visually, um, you know, they visually get that information. Whereas it would be better to have the person say their last four, have the person, the, the call center person key the last four in mm-hmm. and then give like a red light, green light saying yes, pass or fail. Right. right. So they don't have access to the last four. It's just like dumb that they don't do that. Well, it could also be that they're collecting the social security numbers, not from the records as they reside, but all, but as they're coming in, right? Because you have to give them a social oh. security number so they can do the credit check in order to get in the account, right? True. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, glad I'm not AT&T this week. Yeah, I wonder if they had air-gapped uh, computer systems here. Well, apparently it, would, apparently it wouldn't matter, because uh, some researchers over at Ben-Gurion uh, University in Israel uh, figured out a way to, I, I think it's either by detecting radio waves or heat, or maybe both, uh, on a given computer, they can detect uh, mm-hmm. uh, key, uh, they can detect keystrokes uh, from a distance of up to 7 meters. Yeah. In th- in this case, it was heat. Heat, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what it would do is it would, uh, I forget what the rate was that it could, that it could do it, but the, um, like the computer would, the, the sending computer would generate a certain level of, of, you know, do some sort of uh, computation that would stimulate certain parts of the computer mm-hmm. and, and make them hotter, mm-hmm. like whether it's the GPU or the CPU or the disk drive. And then if you put a computer next to it, um, it would be able to, uh, the sensors in that computer would be able to detect whether it was, you know, the temperature was rising um, in, in particular things and, and be able to, to take that information. And the, the bit rate is very low in terms of, you know, or the baud rate of being able to collect that data. Um, but they just show that it is possible. And, and the other part is that 
you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's an interesting proof of concept, but both computers need to be compromised anyhow. Um, so you need to have that sort of, uh, 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 you know, you, you already have com- uh, compromised computers, so it's, you're kind of in trouble already. Right, right. So, so very much like a proof of concept, right? Rather yes. than a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So Dave, do you have any iOS devices? You can tell me. Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. I have a, um, I have a, a, uh, computer that runs iTunes in order to, um, just manage my Google music collection, but that's about it. Okay. Okay. So, the, so, uh, apparently folks with iPhones have been afflicted by this clever new advertising technique, which is, uh, you visit the page, the page then loads the ad, the ad then redirects your browser to iTunes and opens up a, uh, uh, opens up, you know, whatever the, the person's chosen app that they're promoting. Um, Super intrusive, super invasive, and really annoying because it function it makes that web page basically useless, right? Because every time you visit the web page, you get sent to the app store. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so, Apple in iOS eight uh, put out a put a blocker in there, so the, so you're not allowed to send someone to the app store without human intervention. Um, but apparently, they've already figured out a way around that problem. Um, and so. Anyway, uh, huge outrage um, up on my favorite. Uh, <laughs> my favorite response from tw- on Twitter was uh, a woman uh, who suggested that the publishers uh, who use this technique should be torn apart like feral hogs. Mm, nice. Uh, sort of very, anyway, the, the, we'll include a link to the uh, article on that in the uh, in the show notes. Um, but just as to show that, like attacks or uh, inconveniences uh, can actually come from uh, from a bunch of different places, right? Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, just, and all you had to do to be vulnerable to this kind of attack was just turn on JavaScript and suddenly you can't read fast company. Wow. Yeah. Pretty bad. Pretty mm. bad. Speaking of pretty bad, we got some yep. TSA news. Yeah. Yeah. There isn't there, they released, uh, or it, I guess it got leaked the, uh, the behavioral profiling uh, techniques that they're using got leaked. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember, Dave, when TSA first started, this was a big deal, right? Everybody kind of looked at LL and uh, how the Israelis manage air, airplane and airline security. Uh, yes. And a big part of that is their behavioral screening program, right, where yep. uh, from the moment you walk into the airport, they're taking a look at you and figuring out whether you're squirrely or not. And so the TSA, in, I guess, typical TSA fashion, um, spent billions of dollars developing a similar program for the United States, and uh, you, you'll actually see these like behavior officers at the at the airport. They're the ones who aren't aren't apparently doing anything. Um, they're just kind how, of how, which ones? <laughs> no, that's that's not nice. But go ahead. <laughs> they, I, that was a softball. Uh, yes. And uh, so these are the uh, these are the guys who are standing, uh, I guess, at a podium and kind of watching the people as they as they file in through the uh, through the TSA grinder. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, these guys are trained and they're trained on detect, are looking for, you know, they have a certain criteria for the kind of person that they're looking at. So, so this, this criteria was leaked. Um, and it is the most inane, uh, kind of Cro-Magnon approach to this problem. I mean, it's really just embarrassing. And the, what they are apparently trained to look for is so impossibly broad, uh, that mm-hmm. they could pretty much pull anybody out of a line according to this criteria, right? Um, yep. just basic stuff like shifting from shifting their weight from one side to the other, scratching their nose. Um, all of these things are supposed to be, you know, telltale signs of somebody who's got, uh, who, who's got, uh, evil in their hearts. Um, just a great example of, 
how what a terrible situation the TSA is in right now. It's really appalling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some of them. There's a list on the on the link in the show notes here about. Um, I mean, you, you could just, I could go on forever, but things like exaggerated yawning, um, yeah, um, or arriving late for a flight, you could be a terrorist. You know, this is almost <laughs> like a, a Jeff Foxworthy thing that's just not funny. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would yeah. <laughs> it would be funny if they didn't have the power to detain you indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, how, how about your, if your face is pale from recent shaving of beard? That's <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. It's so bad. Uh... So yeah, so so but Dave, once you get through the TSA line, um, the airlines are now prepared to uh, uh, to relax you, right? Using using chemicals. Yeah, yeah. There's well, yeah. They they have a new thing with. Uh, they seem to be getting into smells. Um, so like uh, Delta and Singapore Airlines are already using fragrances on their planes, and now. Um, United is the next in line to do this, where their new signature fragrance is called Landing, mm-hmm. um, and it smells like orange peel and fir trees. And so this is what dis- this is distributed in in little vials, and you can uh, put it on your wrists or uh, behind your ears, and and get that signature United smell. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it looks like uh, well, and and so the the airline is pumping it into some jet bridges and member lounges at O'Hare. Um, via a discrete fan that's about the size of a toaster. Um, so you're at an airplane. You're okay. So you're, you're at an airport. Mm-hmm. Um, you see something about the size of a toaster that is excreting <laughs> a gas. <laughs> so now let's go back to our TSA checklist and, and let's review. Um, so any excessive throat clearing? Um, how about uh, complaints about the screening process? Uh, <laughs> trembling um uh yeah yeah and it turns Clearing out a lot of throat it, yeah, yeah a lot of this is just uh yeah allergic reactions to uh to united signature uh signature scent mm-hmm. yeah um yeah well this isn't new though i mean this is new for maybe for airlines but uh i know that uh marriott has been doing this for years i don't know whether this is a deliberate marketing thing or it's just how their carpet cleaner smells but uh yeah. you go into a marriott and you know you're a marriott uh just by the smell i mean it is a very familiar you know being a 10-year marriott guy now um there's definitely a signature marriott smell i can't tell like it's like to me it's like a moldy kind of smell but i was uh, what does it smell like to you um it's a little bit floral and a little bit astringent um I'm, I, I don't have a nose for this kind of thing. Like um, a Febreze sort of thing? Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder, if the, I wonder if it's just the smell of like whatever their industrial strength Febreze thing is. Um, yeah. But it, but it's definitely specific to Marriott, right? I wouldn't smell that same thing in a, in a Hilton. Yeah. So I was, I was in the Dulles Marriott a couple of weeks ago and I was walking down the hallway and I, I could definitely smell this sort of, some sort of smell of, of, of like a, air freshener sort of thing. And I did see this thing about, um, the size of a toaster on the wall, um, that I think was like kicking out that smell. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but so I don't know if it's the same thing that the United's using or whatever, but, uh, but I, you know, it's like for, I have family members that have asthma really bad. And I I just, I worry that, you know, you have an asthma attack. uh, It's just not good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder, is there, there's got to be some way to make the, I can't imagine that United would start pumping this into airplanes without, you know, making sure that it's not going to affect as, uh, the asthmatics, right? Yeah. Well, I know that like, like, uh, like 
perfume and cologne mm-hmm. is like it just triggers an asthma attack. Right. Um, like right. yeah. So and uh, but and speaking of cologne, um, and I don't know if, if this would cause an asthma attack. Um, did, did you see the Burger King's going to start selling a, a Whopper scented uh, cologne in Japan? It's revolting. It's just revolting. <laughs> now is that is that are they, like they know they're kidding, right? They they that that's not a serious proposition, right? It, that's yeah, like a, that's I don't like know a, if that's, that's, or that was an April first thing or yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or a, a way to get some press, but uh, or if it's those crazy Japanese people, um, it, we need to talk to Adam about this and get his advice. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so speaking of uh, speaking of uh, uh, getting painful chemicals uh, shot into your face, uh, there is a uh, a city or yeah a city in uh, in India um, mm-hmm. that uh, bought a number of drones mm-hmm. uh, for riot control. And uh, for at the, a bargain at ten thousand a pop, uh, these mm-hmm. these uh, drones can carry a two pound payload, uh, mm-hmm. and so they have elected to load it up with uh, HD cameras, of course, uh, yep. but then also pepper spray dispensers. Oh, nice! So you get an unruly crowd. You just uh, send in the robots, and uh, the robots shower the crowd with pepper spray. Nice. Well, yeah. and I guess they could train them with with the uh, United or Marriott smell or the Whopper smell. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> How to mollify an angry crowd? It's just <laughs> just shower them with Whopper smells. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Especially in India. <laughs> Especially where, in yeah. India. Maybe not in India. Okay. Maybe not that in would India. cause a riot. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what is that? But uh, so you know, uh, a good way to get people worked up is adding drone anything to the conversation. But you know, I yeah, it sounds odd on the outset. But then I was thinking like well actually this is this is probably a pretty good idea um because it allows i would presume it would allow you to target it a little bit a little more effectively um uh presumably you could do it without putting police in harm's way uh but then there's like a then there's like a moral hazard thing right where since i don't have to put anybody in harm's way i'm actually more likely to deploy it yeah and you're also kind of faceless as far as like you can very much like the drones where you know you are thousands of miles removed or whatever from whatever you're prosecuting mm-hmm. um you could have the police officer that is carrying the billy club you know they're photographed and you mm-hmm. can see them abusing and all that but if it's like a drone how can you trace that back to somebody that was doing something bad yeah yeah just so just so great point yep yeah and and uh but meanwhile, I've uh, I, one of the things with all the foster kitten stuff we've been doing is is it uh, we're we're trying to get we don't want to have like repetitive stress disorder from using a laser pointer and getting the cats all wound up. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. 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 And and so um, I uh, found a thing on um, uh, on the internet where I can use an Arduino and a couple servos and a laser pointer uh, to make an automated cat laser. And so I built one and, uh, and the instructions I put in the show notes. So if anybody wants to replicate that, it, it works pretty nice. Oh, that's great. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds, that sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds yeah. Like a lot so of fun. it's like you could put the, the, the kittens in a room, um, turn the laser thing on and then just leave and, and they would just <laughs> go insane and, and just do that for days. And yeah, that sounds very, very satisfying. Uh, for everybody a, for everybody mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah that's right and you could uh stick it on your roof of your house and uh see if you can't uh, take down some helicopters yes yeah 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 i have the faa uh, come visit yeah. <laughs> that's right. spray me with something yeah. <laughs> that's right uh all right so dave we're, uh, uh next week we're in san diego in yep. sunny san diego um gonna kick off our fiscal year 
mm-hmm. so that'll be fun to go to go see some old friends uh hopefully make some new friends um do you have any ambitions uh for the for this uh for this kickoff oh boy it's gonna be busy it's it's we're it's gonna be like two days out there solid of you know just doing a lot of stuff and then um so it's it's just gonna be jam-packed with a lot with a lot of things for us to, uh, to do so yeah, yeah. It's going to be a good good use of our time, very action-packed, so I'm excited. Yes. Um, and, in fact, we'll talk a little bit later about uh, effective use of meetings um, yes. uh, because we're going to be in a week's worth um, locked inside a Sheraton in uh, San Diego. Um, and also, coming up, we got Red Hat Summit. Yes. Yeah, speaking of good uses of time, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, we the, the uh, sessions that got accepted, the word got out, and... Uh, one of the things, just a little inside baseball that, that I've been helping with is the um, the session ordering, which you can imagine is like 30-dimensional uh, chess as mm-hmm. far as like or Sudoku um, of like moving all the sessions around to make sure you don't have too much overlap because um, there's like 14 parallel tracks going on and um, it, it's just crazy, but a lot of fun. Cool. Oh, that's great. This, is a, and you, this isn't the first year you've been, I mean, you do this almost every year, right? Yeah, yeah, they keep they keep asking me back. I don't think anybody else wants to do it because it's just like, <laughs> it's a it's a ton of work, but but it's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, okay. Uh, CWE vulnerability assessment report. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know what's what's interesting is the transparency that we have in our with our security team, right? Um, you know how we do the risk report right. of, that says that, oh, we, these are the vulnerabilities we had. We fixed them all 98% within one business day, um, you know, things like that. Um, this, uh, so CWE is, instead of CVE, common vulnerability enumeration, this is common weakness enumeration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a standard dictionary of, of common software weaknesses like buffer overflows, stuff like that. Um, uh, or like not initializing variables before you use them, uh, and so it's a common way of, of describing vulnerabilities um, and and to help prevent uh, prevent things. Um, so one of the things that uh, our security team did was, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes, is uh, a blog post on uh, uh, common uh, weakness enumeration vulnerability assessment report for 2014. So basically, we talk about the uh, things like the top 10 weakness. Uh, top ten weaknesses in Red Hat products. That's great. It's amazing. Like usually, you you wait for our competition to tell you what's wrong <laughs> with our product, <laughs> but we'll tell you, you know, <laughs> which is amazingly transparent. Um, but that also, you know, well, so Gunnar, let me ask you. I have opinions on this, but okay. why why would we want to do this? Would why wouldn't this be like a top secret proprietary thing that we wouldn't want to share with anybody? Well, I think it has. To, I think if we were a proprietary company, that would definitely be true. Um, I think that uh, because we work in communities and you know our software projects are not ours alone, um, we actually share responsibility for good upkeep with others. Uh, I think it's nice to kind of hold this report, a report like this, up as an example and say, "Hey, we have." we know we have these vulnerabilities and these are the things that we should all be looking out for, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because it's actually a reflection not just on Red Hat's work, but actually on the work of the broader open source community. I mean, we touch, what, how many thousand, uh, mm-hmm. probably over 10,000 software projects we're involved in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, this is this is also, a, this is not just a report card on Red Hat's behavior. This is a report card on, on everybody's behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I also see it as this is not a one and done sort of thing. 
this is something that you want to measure over time to mm -hmm. see if we're actually improving. Yeah. Um, so by playing your cards face up, that sort of forces us to have to do better next time instead right. of where you know a more proprietary uh, or a proprietary company could um, hide behind a binary and sweep a lot of things under the rug um, and and you know get into those sort of bad habits where where we can't escape that. So we really this you know we, we really want to be motivated to um, uh, to improve and and demonstrate. Uh, in a measurable way that we are improving. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, it also sets the goalposts, right? Um, mm -hmm. We can now go to competitors and say, where's your CWE vulnerability assessment report? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's some nice work. It's, it's stuff like that that makes me happy to work here. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, so, you know what You know what else makes me happy to work here? Simon Lukasik. Simon Lukasik. Simon Lukasik. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the, these guys are just tireless over there. Um, so... Uh, uh, Martin, uh, who's on, uh, who's on Simon's team, um, over there in, uh, in Brno, uh, has been doing a little bit of SCAP work Yeah, and, yeah. uh, put together an SCAP workbench, but here, yep. Dave, here's the twist. It doesn't yep. run on rel. Huh? It runs on, uh, on windows and, uh, and OS 10. So, so it, uh, tell me why would, why would Martin waste his perfectly good and, and serious talent on building a tool for windows and, uh, and OS 10? Redemptive suffering. <laughs> Redemptive suffering. That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, that that, that he's uh, wearing a hair shirt as he's, <laughs> as he's right. writing the Windows code and yep. and lashing himself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm going to take a wild guess that Martin's Lutheran. Yeah. No, he's uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> no Martin. Uh, so what the tool is the SCAP workbench, um, which allows you to uh, do remote auditing uh, using SCAP. Uh, do remote auditing of so, so for example, um, if you wanted to go look for a particular CVE. Um, wanted to make sure password lengths were set to the right minimums um, on a bunch of different machines. Um, usually, you know, using the tools that we ship, you'd need to run that tool on a on a Linux box, on a mm -hmm. preferably on a rel box. Um, but uh, Martin's uh, developed these Windows and OS ten uh, with these Windows and OS ten clients. Um, so even if in your organization you have like a company assigned Windows laptop, you can still go and do that important maintenance on your uh, on your rel machines. So it's great. Yeah, it's a lot nicer than editing XML files by hand. That would be for real. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. Um, so cool. You know who else? Uh, you know who else makes me happy to work at Red Hat? Jamie Duncan. Jamie Duncan, who uh, works on our uh, works on our GSS team, on our customer support team. Um, so a common problem, Dave, as you know, uh, that we have, uh, especially with our DoD and our intelligence customers, is we ask them for log files. Yep. And uh, they hate they, that. They, they hate, hate that. that. They yeah. hate it. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't know that we have a special flag for certain accounts. And when that flag is turned on, this like special handling flag is turned on in the account, um, it tells our GSS guys to not ask you for log files um, mm -hmm. because they know it enrages you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a yeah checkbox that says angry customer. And, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so Jamie, Jamie uh, has, uh, so, you know, when we ask for log files, when we ask for kind of information about the system that you're logging a ticket on, we frequently ask you to run a, a SOS report, an SOS report. Um, and that takes a bunch of configuration data, a bunch of log files, and ships it over to us and attaches it to the ticket. Oh, pretty nice system, um, unless you are one of these customers. Um, yep. So what Jamie built was a tool that runs through that, uh, that bundle, that kind of diagnostic bundle, and takes out identifying information, stuff like IP addresses, um, and yeah. kind of sanitizes it um, so that you can feel a little bit better about sending it up. Now, is it a... And, mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't redact it. It actually obfuscates it. 
Yeah, so, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So instead of like blowing away the IP address, it puts like a notional one in there. So like, let's say you have a four node cluster and node three is always going bad. It, there would be like a pseudonym for node three that, you know, so you could track it down to a particular node. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. And he, uh, and the latest innovation on this, uh, SOS cleaner, he calls it, um, is he, uh, he built it up into a, a Docker container. Um, mm -hmm. so you can just do a Docker pull, uh, grab it out of the Docker registry and, uh, and let it loose on your, on your sauce reports. So nice work, Jamie. So, Hey Dave, how do you feel about DevOps? Oh, I, I love DevOps. I, I I can't get enough DevOps. So there, there's a there's a running joke uh, inside uh, inside public sector where uh, we talk about uh, DevOps as a skew. Like, oh yeah, how do you mean you need uh, twelve DevOps? I'll I'll get that right mm -hmm. for you. Um, yeah. So we laugh and we kid, uh, but we have done our best actually to turn DevOps into a skew, uh, mm -hmm. into into a, into something that you can buy. Uh, so our uh, services organization uh, put together a really nice uh, DevOps uh, kind of package that helps. Uh, helps agencies uh, do the assessments, um, mm -hmm. run through kind of how to do this kind of DevOps transformation, um, and of course, uh, you know, suggestions on where Red Hat products can can help out um, and and enable a kind of DevOps type culture shift. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about that. I was, and frankly, I was surprised at how deep and thorough the material was. Um, I was. Uh, and maybe I, I don't mean to be uncharitable about our services organization, but I was expecting this to be kind of a press release and a marketing slick. Um, yeah. but it is actually, it is substantial. Um, mm. this, they put a lot of thought into this. Uh, so nice work guys. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. So, so tell me about paychecks. What, what are they up to? Oh yeah. Yeah. So paychecks, uh, I, man, Dave, you know how much I love it when customers develop tools and then contribute them back to the community, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly what that is. So Paychex uh, is uh, one of our like reference customers for OpenShift. Um, mm -hmm. They have done a ton of great work on that, and they've been on the platform for a while. Uh, they have the challenge of uh, they have they are not fortunate enough to be running all JBoss inside their organization, so they've still got some uh, pockets of uh, dead enders uh, running WebLogic, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they need to run, they need this web logic, of course, uh, they need to, they would love to be able to run it on OpenShift uh, so they can spin up those environments and manage them just like they can the Ruby and the Perl and the PHP and the Python and everything else. Um, they developed a web logic cartridge for OpenShift uh, and then uh, they posted it up on GitHub. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Really, it was really nice of them. Uh, so if you uh, have been looking at OpenShift or platform as a service and you've been eager to try it out, uh, but you have been... Uh, discouraged because you're on the WebLogic platform, uh, be discouraged no longer. Um, you uh, you can use OpenShift and you do not have to move to JBoss, although obviously we recommend it. Mm -hmm. yep, yep, totally. Cool. So Dave, you were talking about CWEs, these yep. you know common weakness in numeric So One of the reasons why CWEs are so important is because they actually cover developer behavior and not just the code that they put out, right? Yep, yep. Um, and so there was a great talk at uh, at the uh, the Chaos uh, Computer Conference, um, you know they do every year uh, out in Germany. Uh, there was a fantastic presentation uh, by Mike Perry of the Tor Project on reproducible builds. Mm. So David, can you tell me what's your guess? Over a reproducible build, what would that be, and why would that be interesting? So a reproducible build is um, being able to come up with the same binary that somebody else came up with. Exactly, um, which is way harder than you think it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, so it turns out that, uh, and I encourage everybody to go watch this watch this talk because it's uh, it's really eye opening. Um, you would think that that would be totally straightforward, right? Um, mm -hmm. I compile something, you compile something, and as long as we're working off the same code base, we're going to come out with the same binary, right? 
Yeah. Almost never. Uh, because things get inserted into the build process. Uh, so that means like date, uh, date and time stamps, for instance, um, will get inserted into the binaries. And so two binaries uh, will not look the same. Um, there's stuff like language settings. There's stuff like uh, uh, which version of the build tools that you're using. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, the, anyway, this talk is about how you go through creating a reproducible build process. Um, and a lot of that involves putting a lot of control um, and a lot of certainty around the actual build environment itself, uh, which, uh, uh, which makes sense. Um, anyway, I'm just really intrigued by this. They're doing really interesting work. The Firefox folks are working on this. I know the Debian folks are, are doing some work on this. The Tor project is working on this. Um, I just find that the whole, the whole problem is really fascinating. Um, yeah. and, uh, and the, I think the, the, the final part of it, which they don't really talk about in the talk is once you've gone through this process where you actually have a reproducible build, um, what you've done is now set the bar pretty high for folks who do not have reproducible builds. Yep. Because a reproducible build is basically the only way that you can be sure that you are getting what the other person says you're getting in an open source project, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, totally. And so, you know, for, for Red Hat, like we sign our binaries and that's basically our promise that, you know, the source code that we publish is the source code that went into this build system. Right. Um, yes. And, you know, and folks, and so, our trust in Red Hat is kind of a proxy for or, or a, a replacement for, you know, having a, a fully reproducible build. Um, yep. Anyway, I really interesting. Um, on if reproducible builds become widespread, um, how that moves the kind of the, or how that changes the trust equation in, in software distribution um, and how it makes things more difficult for folks who want to do nasty things to the build process, right? So uh, ISC, the folks who, uh, who build DNS, um, uh, you know, a while back, Red Hat had its um, uh, SSL keys compromised. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, people can do nasty things if they can compromise the build process. They don't actually have to compromise the software project itself. Um, mm -hmm. And so reproducible builds seem like a, uh, are like kind of a really great way of, of kind of hedging against that, against that risk. Anyway, mm -hmm. I, as you can tell, I'm really excited about the topic. I think it's cool. And everybody should go watch this uh, extremely nerdy presentation. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, they should watch it and then schedule a meeting to discuss it. Yes, yeah. So, the, so the, what got us on this uh, meeting thing is that there's a great article in The Economist. Um, it's kind of a fun overview of uh, uh, meetings, uh, bad meeting behavior. Um, and so they, they pick out some uh, comps. So Dave, you and I have talked about some of this stuff in the past, like mm -hmm. um, this notion of uh, anchoring an idea. Uh, so that uh, if somebody has something already kind of knocking around in their brain, they're going to be mm -hmm. more likely uh, to use that or more likely to apply it. Um, mm -hmm. And so in the experiment, I think they had a roulette wheel that always landed on, I think, 5 and 62. And then you went into them, then they took the, the, the subjects, put them into a meeting, and then asked them to guess at the percentage of something or other. And they, and a, a high proportion of them guessed 62%. Um, hmm. because they had just come from watching that roulette wheel. So that's this notion of like anchoring. Um, anyway, the, the article goes through a bunch of these uh, kind of meeting dynamics, um, presumably with the recommendation that you'd want to kind of avoid them or, you know, kind of actively interfere with these, um, these kind of uh, subconscious reactions uh, in order for, to have a more effective meeting. Um, but I'll admit, Dave, I mean, even some of the basics on good meeting behavior, uh, I just, I had a bunch of meetings this week and I was not pleased with a whole bunch of them. 
Yeah. Um, I got. I got. So one recommendation I got is um, having an outcome and telling people what how the world is going to be different at the end of that meeting, um, and preferably telling them that not 15 minutes into the meeting, but a week before the meeting started. Right. Yep. Because um, that way I could do the necessary homework. Um, you know, read all the necessary background information, and I could walk into that meeting being immediately useful. Um, or, or knowing whether you should show up. Exactly. Yeah, even more important. Um, those, you know, the best meeting is the meeting that I don't have to attend. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. What, Dave, what, what, what was your pet peeve this week? Yeah, it's, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, I, I don't like making the agenda as the first part of the meeting. You know, like like having an agenda to begin with is important, and and I think that it's worthwhile too for um, inviting the right people and the right number of people, and again having that agenda, and letting I, I think it like I think a rule should be if somebody doesn't see value in that meeting, it's okay for them to not show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that would be yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And because um, it, it would force people to do the necessary kind of marketing and background in order to to convince people to show up to the meeting, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, and also let people know that they have stuff to prepare for or to report on or things like that. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, multiple types of meetings too, right? Where there's, you know, where there's information meetings where people are just reporting status. There are other ones where you're brainstorming. Um, and there's other ones where you're trying to come to uh, consensus or make a decision on things. And I think a lot of times people don't make that distinction either whenever they have their meetings mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. yeah because i you know the thing for me is i hate it whenever it's like it's almost like uh like a colombo episode or something where it's like you're being invited and and you know you're being you know you're going to find out who the murderer is or like you don't even it's like a total <laughs> mystery as far as what this whole meeting is about and it's like okay why am i here and that oh that drives me nuts yeah yeah here's a neat trick uh i got an invite uh for an engineering meeting uh, this week, and in the invite, it declared that the meeting was a pigs and chickens meeting. Can you can you guess what that means? No, I know pets and cattle. Um. Mm-hmm. So pigs and chickens, uh, as the story goes, this is a favorite of our boss, Paul Smith. Um, uh, when it comes to breakfast, uh, oh, okay, I know chickens yeah. are involved, but pigs are committed. Yes, right, because chickens yep. get the eggs and the pigs get the bacon. So, uh, be- declaring it a pigs and chickens meeting meant that certain people in the meeting were going to be pigs at the meeting, meaning they were fully invested, uh, they were fully involved, and they are allowed to speak at the meeting. And then there was a whole list of people who were chickens in the meeting, and all of those people were there to listen, hmm. which, I, which I actually appreciate. And it's a nice way of managing the kind of distribution of information problem, um, but also making sure that uh, you know, the consensus building process doesn't kind of run amok, right? Um, right. Cause right. if you get, you get 60 people on the phone, you're never going to get consensus. Um, right. but if you have 60 people and 50 of them can't speak, then, so, you know, now suddenly you have a manageable number of people, uh, from which you can build consensus. So I thought that was a neat tool. That was a nice way of having like a broad based meeting, uh, but also keeping, you know, having a certain amount of control over it. And, and I guess they clearly said who was a who were pigs and who were chickens? Yeah, yeah. In this case, it was uh, by rank. Like, you know, there were a certain number of managers or what have you. But, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It could be, you know, these four people from these four functional areas are pigs. And anyone else who attends uh, may attend, but they are going to be chickens at this meeting. Yeah. No, we've had field meetings or engineering field meetings where 
you know, it's like, oh, we want to hear the voice of the field. And, you know, engineering would start talking and people would cut them off saying, no, no, this is about hearing from them. And we could have a sidebar mm -hmm. to hear your opinion, but but just not right now. Yep, 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 yep. Um, and so and so this this uh, the, like moderation skills in a meeting are really important, right? It's not just enough to like send the meeting invite and then have everybody show up and then be like, okay, what do you guys want to talk about, right? Um, like you know, if you're going to convene a meeting, you know, having like we say, having an agenda, um, having a set of actions at the end of the meeting is super mm -hmm. important. Um, and if you can't if you can't do that kind of necessary homework in order to set up the conditions for a good meeting, um, then people shouldn't have to show up to that meeting. <laughs> right. You're, um, if you think your time is important you're, and you have 10 people on in other people in a meeting, is your time 10 times more important than wasting, you know, those other 10 people's time? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, you, you know, the, uh, I forget who it was, but uh, somebody actually had printed up uh, little coins um, mm -hmm. oh, that, right. uh, that yeah. had, uh, had <laughs> inscribed on them as uh, Tempest Fugit. And, uh, and those coins were worth uh, 15 minutes of that person's time. Yep. Um, and so there were, you know, so uh, I don't know how long they kept with this, but, you know, they created a kind of economy in the office where in order to command somebody's time, you know, you had to, uh, you had to, you know, hand them a 15 minute coin and then you got 15 minutes of their time. Mm -hmm. uh, that's interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, speaking of, of time, um, you know, the other thing is that if you're running the meeting, you want to have, uh, you want to have whatever the conferencing or, you know, you need to show up early, not, not on time. You want to show up early. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Um, where it's like, you know, a lot of times with the video conferencing or a slide sharing and all that, like how many meetings have you been on where it takes like the first 15 minutes of a meeting to get everybody like on and properly muted and sharing their slides out and everything. It's, it, you know, it's, that's a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, yeah. uh, and, and in fact, going, go taking that one, one step further, you're also responsible for all that technology, right. And responsible yep. for its proper use. So, you know, we just moved to a new video conferencing system, which is actually pretty great. Blue jeans mm -hmm. for anyone who's mm -hmm. interested. Um, and the blue jeans system, uh, gives you, you know, nice little Google hangout style, you know, video and a lot gives you the ability to mute people and even turn off their cameras if you like. Uh, but mm -hmm. only if you're the moderator. Now, mm -hmm. given that power, I am now, I now believe that it is incumbent on the moderator to, you know, if somebody's got their dog barking or their baby crying or they're going to the bathroom or whatever, it's incumbent on the moderator to go and mute that person. Right. Yep. Um, and, and maybe have more than one person as a moderator. So you, it may not be the person leading the meeting that is moderating the video conference. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, you could divide the responsibilities where one person's a scribe and another person's moderating and another person's leading the meeting. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Another thing mm -hmm. is, uh, so one of the other things is like with, uh, Google calendar, um, you could do what they, I think they call it smart meetings. So instead of scheduling a 30-minute meeting, you schedule a 25-minute meeting, or a one-hour meeting, you schedule a 15-minute meeting, and it'll it'll give you a buffer between each of your meetings. I like that a lot. And, and you know what else is when I get an invite for a 25-minute meeting or a 20-minute meeting, mm -hmm. I know already that person is signaling to me that they are taking my time into account. Um, yep. And and that they are taking uh, that they are taking the whole operation seriously. And so I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I. You know, because how many times are, do you have like meeting after meeting stacked up and you can't stretch your legs or get another cup of coffee or, or just like even take notes to like 
flush your mm-hmm. cash out of your head <laughs> That's right. and you know get ready for the next thing so you end up being late for the next meeting and that and it, and it just cascades mm-hmm. yep 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 exactly exactly yep. um also uh here's something that would have come in handy this week um call it when a meeting is over declare that it's over uh, well, I had a number of meetings this week where, uh, you know, they had budgeted an hour, you know, because that was the default in, you know, in the calendaring tool. And we got to about minute 35, minute 40 and starting to wind down, right. It's starting to like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the, you know, we talked about everything we need to talk about and, um, kind of getting ready to go. Uh, but the, the moderator was either unable or unwilling to declare the meeting over. And so the conversation just kind of ground on and went on and, uh, the meeting actually started to eat itself, um, where people would like go back and talk about previous topics, um, Mm. and rehash them a little bit. And it it was just, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was unnecessary. Um, so when the meeting's over, the meeting's over and and tell her and let everybody go, give them that time back. Yeah. Well, and also letting other people go that it's like there may be somebody that just needs to be there for 10 minutes and then you can just dismiss them mm-hmm. if, if they want to leave. Yep. Oh, there, oh that, that leads me to another tip, which is uh, having guests on meetings, mm-hmm. um, which does two things. So you can say, uh, well, we're going to have this meeting and here's the agenda. Um, here are the things we're going to talk about and in what order. Um, and so people can know like, oh, it's an hour scheduled meeting, but I only need to be there for the, these 20 minutes. Right. So that's mm-hmm. nice. Um, and then having guests, which says that, okay, well at, you know, three thirty, Karen is going to come on and talk about X, Y, Z. And at four fifteen, um, Lewis is going to come in and talk about this other thing that actually ke- will help keep the meeting on schedule. Right. Because you're not just working on your own totally, you know, imagined schedule. You're actually, you now have to get other people in on the, on the agenda, um, mm-hmm. which will, you know, kind of keep things moving at the right pace. Yep. Yep. Okay. I feel better. I feel better. Yeah. Yep. Me too. Good. All right. Uh, Dave, man, we talked about a bunch of stuff. If, uh, if people need links to, uh, this new, uh, DevOps services offering the SCAP workbench, SOS cleaner, meeting tips, Red Hat summit, where do they go, Dave? Yeah, RoboLoco. RoboLoco. Um, mm-hmm. They want to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Wonderful. Uh, Dave, thanks, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. Yes, yeah, thanks, Gunner, and thanks, everybody. Talk to you later.